0: Greetings and welcome to the pod. My name is Mark West, and this month we're talking about that stuff that gets caught in your swimming costume when you go to the beach, sand. Dr. Gary Greenberg is a scientist, author, teacher and photographer who combines his passion for art and science by exploring the hidden dimensions of nature. Gary has invented multiple high-definition, three-dimensional light microscopes, and nowadays focuses his microscopes on common objects, such as grains of sand. He's looked at sand from all around the Earth, but the funkiest sand he has examined is from the Moon. He's hoping he can get some sand from Mars. You can identify a beach, or a planet for that matter, from its sand, which depends on the temperature, surf conditions, and marine environment. I started by asking Gary how someone with a PhD in developmental biology ended up as one of the world's foremost experts on sand.
1: That's a good question, and uh, I don't have a really clear answer to that uh, because life just, you know gives you opportunities, and either you, you go with them or you don't, and often it changes your direction in life. So I I have changed, uh, I have, I guess, reinvented myself on numerous occasions in my life, um, and, and I've had a number of sort of different careers, as it were. Uh, I, I started as a start, but I graduated UCLA as a um, as a major in psychology and I knew I didn't want to be a psychologist but I got absolutely fascinated by photography so I I got a camera, I got a movie camera I got really interested in taking time lapse movies I always had an interest in, in science and and it seemed to me that the camera was a really interesting tool to explore nature so I used to do things like take pictures of sunsets and cloud formations and time-lapse um, uh, uh, movies of, of traffic patterns in the city and stuff like that, things that you, you couldn't see or appreciate without sort of this added technology of either time or space. Now I do it in space, that is I look at little tiny things through the microscope. But I became a a, a, a photographer and a filmmaker and, and um, had a company called Environmental Communications with uh, four of their partners, and we made slides and films and videotapes of art and architecture and environment. And in those days, there wasn't the internet. So we we sold these things to universities and colleges, and we made like catalogs. We'd send them out to universities and colleges, and they would buy slide sets as uh, you know educational material. And I, at the end of this, started getting jobs filming through the microscope, and I got absolutely fascinated with looking at life through the microscope for these jobs I was doing from researchers and university people. So that sort of simulated another complete change in my life, and I moved to London and started a PhD in in developmental biology. So that's how that occurred, uh, sort of, uh, it was just a real big reinvention of, uh, of my life. And I got absolutely fascinated with biology and, and, and science. I was always interested in science, but I was actually more interested in astronomy as a youngster. And okay. black holes and, and all of that. But it's funny, I went into biology instead, which I'm really happy I did because biology is just the most it's so deep and so fascinating and so just endless. Uh, it's like diving, you know, talking about ocean swimming. It's like diving into the ocean and being able to explore just anything. There's just like in the ocean, there's, there's more unknown than there is known. Well, that's how it is in biology by far. Um,
0: it's interesting. So you were, um, you were interested in the big things like the black holes and whatnot. And now you're looking at the very small things.
1: I I got to be looking at the very, very small things and fascinated with biology and and looked at cell-cell interaction and how cells interact with each other. I used electron microscopes and light microscopes. And uh, the funny thing is, is at that time when I started, this is now, I started this in the, this is in the late 70s. Um, people said, well, how, why are you using microscopes? Everything in the microscope has already been seen. And I thought, well, that's really really a strange statement because it turns out that just at the end of the 70s was the beginning of an incredible revolution, just the beginning of a revolution in new technology and microscopy, allowed us to see things we've never been able to see before. I mean, so far beyond what we've ever been able to see before, all of a sudden we could see we could see molecules and had them light up as colors on a black background and see DNA. And we could, by the, by the turn of the century, about the millennium, we could see individual atoms um, in a microscope and know exactly what the atoms were made of. Um, it, it was just incredible. I got involved um, after I got my degree in, in developmental biology, and then I went to USC, University of Southern California, was assistant professor and taught uh, cell biology and did research there. Uh, my research needed better microscopes. I couldn't see what I needed to see. So I started to use my knowledge of photography in making new microscopes. There's a big problem with microscopes where that if you look in a microscope, all the lighting comes from one direction just straight on. Well, a photographer would never light a scene with one light straight on. It's very flat. You don't really see what you're looking for. So, in biological samples, you have to. When I started using sort of lighting that a photographer would use, coming in with light from different angles, fill light, backlight, spotlight, and so forth, all of a sudden it increased the resolution and contrast and depth of field and allowed me to see things in 3D. Um, So, I got fascinated. (laughs) This is another big change in my life. I got fascinated with uh, inventing microscopes. So I now have six, I have 20 patents for different kinds of 3D microscopes. And I look at all kinds of things. Came to Hawaii and wanted to retire. I noticed there was a lot of sand around. I brought my microscope with me, and there was a lot of sand and a lot of flowers. And I started taking pictures of flowers and sand through the microscope, and it was just Totally amazing. Now, I don't know if your if your viewers uh, you can't really describe what sand or even flowers looks like in a microscope. So I would in, encourage the um, listeners to go to sandgrains.com, take a look at some of the images I'm talking about because you really can't imagine the beauty of sand grains. They're not just little brown rocks. Uh, every sand grain is different and every sand grain comes from somewhere and goes somewhere. Some of the sand grains are mineral in nature and they're beautiful minerals and, and, and uh, crystals of different um, types. And there's a lot of biological uh, um, remnants in the sand. So a place where like I live in Maui, it's surrounded by reefs. So Lots of the sand is made from coral and sea urchin spine fra- fragments and shells and, and all sorts of biological, you know, teeth and bones and all the heart tissues of biological organisms, the so foraminifera and, and uh, diatoms. It's all left behind as grains of sand. The, the photos so are... You know, the microscope is just amazing. It's a whole world. there. You know, it's like you know, when you go swimming in the ocean, and and you're swimming along, and it feels great, and you're getting this wonderful exercise and feeling the water around you. And maybe you're near a reef, and all of a sudden you put on a snorkel and a mask and put your head down into the water. There's just a whole other world there. So, yeah, so that's yeah. what it's like looking through a microscope. There's this whole other world right there between your – right under your nose. All you need is a microscope to see it. Oh, so that's what it's kind of like. It opens this unbelievable vista in the world that, that, no idea was actually even there.
0: Oh, it's amazing. So i
1: talked. I've there for a while, uh, but that's that's sort of how I how I see it in in sort of the in broad terms.
0: Yeah, it's cool because no, like those photos are amazing. No, no two grains of sand look alike and you can really see the tiny little shells or the spines or and the colors are just phenomenal the sorts of colors you wouldn't get out of a a, a normal microscope would you this is where your photography background comes in actually lighting it to, to really bring out the, the images
1: yeah it's the lighting and also the big problem with microscopes is that they have a very very shallow depth of field so if you're a photographer and you're using a long lens or a a in a very uh, a magnified telephoto lens, um, there's only a little part that's in focus and everything in the foreground and the background is out of focus. Well, microscopes are like that, but in space. just unbelievable. So with a high-power microscope, the, the depth of field is, is like a, a micron, a couple of microns, a thousandth of a millimeter. Yeah, right. Um, so you only see a little slice of what's there. So if you take a picture of sand... Um, all you, you don't see the whole grain of sand, you just see a little, little bit of it in focus. So my microscope, it automatically takes a whole bunch of pictures at different focus levels. And I wrote a program, a computer program that puts all the in-focus parts together and deletes all the out-of-focus parts and puts the whole thing together into an in-focus picture all in, and all in 3D. Ah, so, cool. Yeah, and then... You can see things so clearly. Uh, and when you see sand that way, all of a sudden you see the shapes and the patterns and the colors are spectacular. I know most sand looks sort of beige color, but that's only because all the little pixels of colors all, you know, sort of blend together into a beige color. But there's lots of brilliant colors there once you get close enough to see the individual grains of sand clearly. Do you reckon you could
0: identify a beach or a region or or at what level do you think you could identify uh, sand? Could you say Hawaiian sand versus Sydney sand, for instance?
1: Well, uh, uh, Sydney sand um, is, is very recognisable and very, very, very different than Hawaii sand. Uh, Sydney sand is made mainly of quartz crystals, quartz uh, sand, quartz and feldspar. Um and depending where and whether there's reefs there, there's going to be lots of biological stuff. So depending on where the reefs are, which biological organisms live in those reefs, that'll give you a good clue as to what, um, where the sand came from. Sand from Hawaii or even a little island like Maui, um, every beach is different and dramatically different uh, because of the mixture of what's eroded away from the volcano that particular point. So the volcano had a number of eruptions and the eruptions flowed um, over the volcano and made new, new land, um, you know, and the beaches in those particular areas have different, different geology. And depending on the, on the reefs that, that, that are there, they'll have different biological organisms. So every, uh, every beach in Maui looks different Dramatically different. I know it sounds crazy, but it's true. Um, so yes, you can tell. You can tell a forensic, a, a you know, scientist could tell where a beach is from. And, and in fact, microscopic images of sand have been used to, for example, uh, one example is there was a rape on a beach, and the perpetrator said he had never been to that beach. They looked at sand in the cuff of his beach, and it was exactly in the cuff of his pants. Of his trousers, and it was exactly the same sand that was from that beach. I guess the most famous of the um, forensic stories about sand is that during World War II, the Japanese were dropping balloon bombs on the northwest of the United States. Hundreds of them, and they would go off. And these balloon bombs were made of big, gigantic balloons. It had bombs in them. It had altimeters, and they had sandbags. And the altimeter would tell the balloon when to let go of, of the of the sandbag to make it go higher, and so forth, or when to let out air to go lower. And in about three days, it would. They, the, the Japanese had discovered the uh, the jet stream, and in three days, these blo- these balloon bombs would go from from Japan to the northwest United States, and then they would land and they'd go off. Now, they always pretty much went off in the middle of nowhere, but the American you know army was concerned about it, obviously, in the Coast Guard. And they retrieved these balloon bombs and they were filled with sandbags, and the sand was all the same in all these sandbags. And they thought if they could figure out where the sand came from, they could figure out where the balloon bombs were being made. So they started looking with microscopes, and they, could, they narrowed it in pretty well to a certain area near Tokyo. But then when they looked at a particular foraminifera in the sand, that's a little tiny microorganism that leaves behind little shells, they discovered a, a, a foraminifera that was very rare that, it only, that had been described in, 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 the biology, in, a, in a marine biology book previously that only lives in this particular area beach uh, near Tokyo. They did a reconnaissance flight, saw the beach, saw the, the balloon bomb factory, destroyed it, and that was the end of the balloon bombs in the Second World War. Wow,
0: that's cool. I had never heard that story.
1: Yeah, it's a little-known story, because they didn't want the people to know that there were even balloon bombs. They didn't they just, they didn't really talk about the existence of these balloon bombs. Yeah. Of... Really. I can imagine. Um, but it, it was solved by by looking at, at the sand through a microscope, and narrowing it down to which beach it was, came from. That's incredible.
0: That's absolutely incredible. Um, and, and in Hawaii, there's, uh, the, the, in, I can think off the top of my head, uh, different types of sand that are there, because there's, there's black beaches and there's green beaches and uh, famously differently coloured beaches, which must have completely different constituents.
1: Absolutely. Like in, 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 you know, we have in South Point of Hawaii. Did, did you go to the green sand beach in South Point of Hawaii?
0: No, I, I went to a black sand one, but I didn't get to a green one. I
1: mean, there's a lot of black sand beaches all over because they're made of black volcanic sand. But the green sand beach is spectacular. It's made of olivine. It's a, it's, there's a huge outcropping of olivine from the. Olivine is a mineral that's very much associated with shield volcanoes. In Hawaii, we have shield volcanoes. They're kind of flat looking like a shield you know they look like a shield and olivine is one of the major constituents of it well this in this particular place the beach because of this huge outcropping of olivine the whole beach is like bright green it's unbelievable it's spectacular you have to you have to get there in a four-wheel drive but there's the green sand beaches black sand beaches there's red sand beaches lots of red sand beaches the, the the combinations are, are quite incredible because they say, depending on what what the, you know, when you have these volcanoes, there's a bunch of different uh, volcanic flows, you know, uh, lava flows that happen over the years. And each one carries a different sort of mix of minerals with them. So that's why you have all these different amazing beaches. Plus, as I say, all the biological stuff that may or may not be there. So, like, which is the night, have huge variations in, in the sand, whereas you know um, a lot of the sand in uh, in in, in um, continents, continental sand, is made more of, of quartz and feldspar. It's made more of the degradation and erosion of granite rock um, and rocks like that, uh, because most most of the rock uh, in, in continents, or a lot of the rock in continents is, is made of granite. It's rock that slowly, slowly cooled over time, under sort of under the volcanoes, is, is the word. And then the overlying period of the rock erodes away and leaves these volcanic rocks. Uh, I'm sorry, these these uh, rocks they are made of granite. Um, well, the, it's it's the it's the uh, erosion of granite rock makes a lot of the beaches in, for example, a place like Sydney. But they will vary depending on the biology that happens to be there at the time, or, or not at the time, the biology that lives there, the ecology, and and um, and the underlying you know minerals of of, of, of the rocks that that, that are nearby. But there's less derogation in Sydney, for example, in, in a place like Australia in a given square miles than there would be in Maui.
0: It's an interesting segue there to moon sand, which would have completely different erosion, or completely different origin through erosion and no uh, biological work uh, going on in it. How did you get your hands on moon sand and what did you find?
1: Well, that's an interesting story and that's what led to one of my, one of my other reincarnate or, or other inventions in my life, or reinventing myself, was after I did I did a book on sand uh, from all over the world, um, and the NASA folks uh, uh, who, who had been photographing moon sand um, realized they never saw moon sand as good as they could see it in my 3D microscope. So they came to Maui and brought moon sand with them, and we photographed it. And we went to some went to some meetings, you know, planetary science meetings, and. Did some publications, and then I uh, joined the Institute for Astronomy here in Hawaii, because at the in Maui here we have um, a lot of telescopes on the top of the mountain here, and we have a wonderful research institute in Pukalani, and I joined the group and started a 3D microscope lab there, um, where I got a grant to look at moon samples So I've looked at moon sands from all of the Apollo landings, and of course the erosion is very different because there's no water, there's no there's no freezing and thawing cycles like we have here, uh, there's, no, there's no atmosphere. Uh, so the erosion, I mean, I've got a grain of sand from the moon that's about four billion years old. It hasn't eroded away other than you can see some tracks of high, high energy particles that pierced it at one point in its life. Um, and a lot of the erosion happens on the moon happens by bombardment of micrometeorites. So the moon's always being bombarded by little tiny micrometeorites. And it's sort of melting little bits of little bits of sand grains together and, and it leaves little holes in the middle because as the micrometeorite, sort of a grain of dust going at twenty thousand miles an hour, hits the moon sand. And it's sort of melted together into this little ring. They call them ring agglutinate. It's a little agglutinated bit of melted sand with a hole in the middle. And um, they're very they're unique to the moon. We have no no grains of sand like that on Earth. There's no terrestrial counterpart. And I looked at the sand from all over the world. There's nothing like it. So it's actually proof that we went to the moon. Those who think we didn't go to the moon, take a look at the grain <laughs> of the moon sand. On my website, and you'll see. And yes, we actually did go to the moon.
0: And I believe that uh, some of the future Mars missions and asteroid missions are going to be they're going to be return missions. So, you got any hopes of getting some sand from a planet, uh from another planet or an asteroid?
1: Well, you know that's going to be a ways off. I'm afraid I'm I'm already. I, I just turned seventy-five, so I'm an old guy. So, um, <laughs> I won't be, but hopefully others will be looking at that.
0: It'll be pretty cool. So that I, I read on your website that they're taking your or you're building a, a new microscope for the International Space Station. Is that right?
1: They're the um, the tech, not my three D technology. Uh, uh, um, I was work, I worked on the design of it and the early early design of this uh, going up to the yeah the International Space Station has a microscope and it's being replaced by a new microscope that's using my 3D technology on it.
0: Wow. So, you're on the International Space Station, that's pretty cool. I was watching one of your videos, and you were talking about you had a well. You were involved in the Superman movies in the '70s as well.
1: Yeah, this is when I was sort of segueing between being a filmmaker, and I knew a lot of filmmakers, and I knew a lot of people in Hollywood, and and becoming a scientist. so this is when I first moved to London to start my degree. I got a job, you know, in those days they didn't have computers like we have today to do special effects, uh, uh, computers in, in the late, in the late or mid, middle, mid seventies were very, um, archaic compared to what we have today. Um, and so when you did special effects, you had to think of something that you could film to make it look like something else. So, uh, um, Uh, I I knew people working on the Superman film and they were looking for ways to film the the surface of Krypton. I said, well, I have a way to make cells in a microscope look like a moonscape um, where every nucleus looks like a crater on the moon um, and every little particle in the cell looks like another little crater on the moon. Um, And it actually does. It's a a technique uh, called... um, uh, you Nomarski know, uh, differential interference contrast, and you can actually make these cells look like a moonscape. So I I, I was working on human pancreatic cancer cells that looked particularly moonlike, um, and I I uh, got the job to do the special effects. Like so I made a little system where the where the it made it look like you were flying over literally flying over this sort of moonscape, and I colored it uh, um, sort of pink and blue. Uh, which was the colors of of, of the of what, what Krypton was supposed to be, and uh, and it looked like you were flying over. It Literally, looked like you were flying over Krypton. It was the opening, it was the opening scene of of the movie.
0: I love it. So Krypton is uh, human pancreatic cancer cells.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hard to believe. <laughs> the doing. And
0: that, that would have been like. Difficult to rig up, wouldn't it? With with seventies on film and everything, connecting that to a microscope, and then moving at the right speed and everything would have been pretty. That's some good engineering.
1: If there was some. I, I was. I was. I figured out some clever ways to do it. There was a. I had a stage that was a rotating stage. Um, this is before they had like digitally, you know, that, uh, you know, digitally controlled. You know, computer-controlled stages. Um, uh, they have them now. You can do anything you want with them. But those days, they didn't. But I realized that this stage, this rotating stage, was on a ball bearing that was really smooth, and you could, I could offset the stage, and then I got this motor hooked up to rotating it really, really slow the, the stage, and it was way offset, so it looked like you were kind of doing this banking, this banking maneuver really uh, sort of flying over the surface doing a banking maneuver on the under the surface of this thing. And so it actually did look like you were flying over Krypton. It was pretty amazing. <laughs> that's really great.
0: Uh, it's that's that's the things you overcome, right? The, the things you could come up with. It's and, really then, cool. and
1: then and yeah, then you, you put on this say, you know, my mic was the mic the, the 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 camera those days cameras were really big. There was a, a you know, this is a big a big widescreen camera, you know a uh, what do you call it? A big, a big Panavision camera. I had to build a mount onto the wall to hold the camera because it was like way bigger than the microscope was. And 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 then the way they did the way they did um, widescreen in those days, in fact they still do, is they shoot it um, with what's called an anamorphic lens. So they shoot everything with a lens that makes everything look tall and thin. And then when they project it in the movie theater, the lens in the movie theater spreads it out so everybody looks normal. So imagine you have a circle, which is the nucleus of every cell. And then all of a sudden you photograph it uh, uh, just normal as a circle. Then you project it in the movie theater where it spreads it out like, it, like, it, like, an, like an oval, it makes it look like it's foreshortened, like you're actually flying over. Like giving it perspective, sort of thing. Like a perspective view. That's why it looks so realistic.
0: Ah, I'm going to... I When we finish chatting, I'm going to go and look this up on YouTube because I'm, I'm sure it's there. <laughs> I haven't seen the movie for well, years.
1: Well, of on YouTube, if you look at it in low resolution, it's just going to look like blue. Uh, I, I try to look at it... On a low resolution, you you have to get like a like a video, like a oh, okay, what do you call it? A DVD. You have to see it on on a DVD in high resolution to be able to actually see it, because it was made for it was made for a shot flying onto the you know yeah. You don't see, you won't see it in a in, in a low res uh, you know uh, version of it. So try to get yourself a high res version of
0: it? Okay,
1: no, that could be tonight's job. <laughs> it's
0: What's next for your for your research? Are you still uh, looking in the sort of the sand area? I know you're doing a lot of work on flowers as well. What's uh, what's what what no, are you up to I, now? And what's next?
1: I, 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 I wanna I wanna I, I, I've done a, I did a TED talk on flowers a little over a year ago called Florotica about the sensuality of, of flowers when you look them through, through the microscope. So I'm I'm uh, I'm working on a book. I'd like to do a, a, a nice art book on flowers through the microscope. That's one of the things I'm working on. But I'm also working on a, a new one of my new inventions, where it is a it's an add-on little device, hardware and software device that turns a conventional 2D microscope into a high-powered 3D microscope, where you can do 3D measurement, image analysis, and so forth. Um, so it'll sort of democratize um, high-resolution 3D microscopy for the average researcher.
0: So I can see how that might... Well, I don't know exactly how it would work, but you, you still have just the single lens and then change the focus and record it. it, it
1: yeah, it, it's a single lens. It, it's all in the lighting, like I said to begin with. it. Uh, the way well, I have a couple of ways. Some with the lighting. Some has to do with lighting from different angles. Another has to do with um, uh, prisms and and mirrors uh, to get to get the 3D. Yeah. And then a lot of it is is, is software it, and it's automated. So it's it's an automated focus device. Uh, what do you call it? An automated illuminator that does um, yeah. multiple illumination and automated camera and automated uh, Software that puts it all
0: together I can imagine there's a lot of there'd be a lot of interest in I don't know mining companies or petroleum companies or other people mm-hmm. that have to that dig up the ground essentially uh, that they'd, they'd be very right. interested in that sort of thing
1: well, one of our, our I'd say the, the um, geology is, has been the geology and neuro and neuroscience have been the two largest, uh, uh groups of of, of scientists who have, who have, who have, uh who use my technology, who
0: have bought my microscopes. Oh, okay. So uh, neuroscientists are looking at neurons
1: and how they connect to the yeah. other. So three D three is really important in neuroscience and three D is incredibly important in geology. Geology is, you know, basically looking at little grains of of minerals that crystallize and, and the borders of them and how they meet one another and and, and voids uh, in in these minerals and so forth. So you really need 3D yeah. to be able to understand.
0: That'd be really interesting. I guess you, you can tell the difference between clay soils that stick together and other ones probably have bigger particles. that don't stick as well. I don't know. I'm making this up, but I can see how that's <laughs> you know how that's interesting.
1: Yeah. 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 Cool. A lot of, uh, for the oil industry. A lot of sort of the voids between grains and the voids within grains have a lot to do with. What they're looking for. Uh, three in two, d you just see a little thin slice. You don't really get what's happening. So you need to see this stuff in three
0: D. Yeah. Oh, now, now I'm thinking about it. Yeah, fracking and all that, pulling, pulling oil out of rocks basically. that's what that's what we're yeah, looking the, at. The, yeah. The
1: porosity is uh, the major deal. Whether you whether it's going to uh, seep between the rocks or not. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Wow. Because, because it's seeping between the grains.
0: Wow, that's really interesting. Oh, I hope that goes well.
1: Was is that, you know? It turned out when I was a youngster, I wanted to be a, a, an astronomer, <laughs> and I became a biologist. But now, in my last reincarnation here, I get to play as an astronomer too, with the moon sand. And so forth.
0: <laughs> now you've gone back. <laughs> that's <laughs> been fun for me. <laughs> that's a that's a that's a long arc, but it's a
1: it's a good one. It's a long arc. So if you live long enough, you know, maybe someday you I can it'll come back to the beginning again. <laughs> That's a good message.
0: That's it for this month's edition of The Pod. Thank you very much to Dr. Gary Greenberg for a fascinating chat about sand. If you're interested in chasing up anything you've heard in this episode, get over to the website at www.thepodpodcast.net. That's www.thepodpodcast.net. And up there, I've put some links to Gary's work, and let's see if you can find Gary's kryptonic pancreatic cancer cells. Thanks again. I'll catch you on the next edition of The Pod.